0: at the intersection of true crime and real estate you'll find crime estate i'm heather
1: and my name is elena as real estate agents and true crime junkies we view crimes through a different
0: lens so walk through the door of some of the most notorious true crimes with us and discover how sometimes the scene of the crime has its own story to tell Hey, ladies, we are back with another crime estate podcast this week. Hey. Hey, you know, it is, I I maybe I say this every week, but it is definitely my favorite part of the week chatting about true crime and real estate with you, Alana, and of course with our fabulous producer, Melanie. You know, we haven't quite managed to turn Mel into a real estate agent yet, but she is so great at bringing us some extra info and insights into our stories each week. I think maybe we should forgive her for that for now. What do you think?
1: Yeah, I think so too. Have you been uh, following any interesting real estate or crime news this week? Uh,
2: Yeah. Um, You know, this week's story that you're going to be talking about, um, since I got a little bit of a a look-see first, is going to be really interesting. And it may be one of the scariest stories that we have covered so far. So, yeah, I've not been trying to not reach search too much about it this week so that I can still sleep at night. So, in my free time, I've been following the uh, Corey Richens trial. I don't know if that's exactly how you say her name, but Corey uh, Richens, I know that we had texted each other when she was first arrested, but do you recall this really recent case? vaguely wasn't,
0: yeah wasn't she the real estate agent that like tried to kill her
2: husband maybe yes okay <laughs> yes,
0: <yeah. laughs> sorry so, let, let me just yeah, jump straight to the, right. the plot right. twist
2: there no 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 uh, I don't want to go into too much detail about it because I really think it's an excellent candidate for a future episode but you're right she's that Utah mother of three and realtor who was arrested last year and accused of poisoning her husband so she did kill him or at least allegedly killed him with a very high dosage of fentanyl and apparently she supposedly poisoned her husband because they got into a big argument about a two million dollar house flipping deal that she um uh was working on that he thought was going to be a bad deal and that unfinished house by the way is also a whole interesting story but Mm. it is like over 20,000 feet on almost nine acres and there's like a backstory on backstory on that. So we'll have to talk about that later. Okay.
0: Yeah. Let's let's plug that in for 2024. Uh-huh. Yeah. But
2: but Corey, um so she actually published that children's book about her husband's death um uh, afterwards about a children's book about how you navigate the loss of a loved one um but yeah th- the reason why i've been following it this week was there's was a, a bunch of news that prosecutors are now accusing her of jury tampering and of course wow. with the murdoch murders you know like i'm all t- looking at things like with jury tampering um and Um, See,
0: that's how she does it. She's like, ooh, jury tampering. And she's researching uh, Myrtle. And then she's like, onto this Corey case. And mm. then she's down the rabbit hole of jury tampering. I mean... And I know how you are, Melanie. That is like one thing leads to another and you have well-researched 27 different things. It
2: well does. But yeah, so the jury tempering is because they found a uh, handwritten letter in her um, cell that was supposed to be to her brother, I guess, basically trying to get him to talk about how um, her husband was a drug addict, which eh, I'm not sure if there's any evidence for. But the, the best part of the story is now she came out a couple of days ago claiming, oh no, they just found like a piece of a story that I'm writing I'm writing a new book what? And, yeah yeah exactly and and it's you know it's just a it's a for a book it's not like anything real that I was gonna um, um, send so yeah it's kind of crazy um I, when you were joking earlier about uh, me researching a friend of mine sent me a, a picture of a t-shirt that basically says I'm Almost a detective.
0: And, <laughs> this is true. This yeah. is true.
2: And I was like, yes, yes. Um, so it, it felt close to home. But anyway, like the whole Corey Richards thing, the reason why it just, it feels like a, a made-for-TV movie. And, you know, we, we like the movies. Um, oh, yeah. But we are, yeah. we are
0: all big movie yeah. buffs here. Yeah,
2: we're, we're always talking about that. And kind of made me think, um, I don't know if I've ever asked either of you, do, but do you like horror movies? I don't. That does not surprise me. It did not. <laughs> Hard
0: yeah, no. I, I'm with you. I love a good suspense mm-hmm. movie, um, but I don't. I don't really love the horror genre. I mean, but going back to sort of this to this week's episode, because it could also be a very good made-for-TV movie. Like, do you mm-hmm. think it would be more in the horror genre or suspense genre?
1: I'm gonna go horror. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I think okay. so. Yeah, wow. it's it's really creepy, and there's a lot of ur- urban legends surrounding this one. And it was hard to kind of decipher what's true and what's not. But the best I can tell, this is this is an accurate description of what went down.
0: Okay. Yeah. So I'll maybe we go, should just yeah, dig let's in. Do it, the yeah. Side. Let's do it. Yeah. yeah
1: go okay. for it. So today we're near Boston, Massachusetts. Have y'all ever been to Boston?
0: I, I haven't, and I'm really hoping after today's story, I still want to go because I would love to go and experience it yeah yeah i i want you to go because i want
1: to go and we can add it to our list
0: <laughs> i yeah. mean we are going to have the crime estate tour <laughs> Ooh.
2: of champions can sure. we uh, uh use it for tax purposes and follow it as a business <laughs> <Sure. consent. laughs> yeah why not <laughs> one of my um best friends lives in boston but i've actually only been to visit her one time um and definitely up my alley so yeah i uh i would love to go back for more Yeah, yeah.
1: So it's here in Massachusetts in the 1980s, and I feel like this story might unlock a lot of new fears for people. Ooh, yeah. So let's talk about the perpetrator of the crime. Daniel LaPlante was born in 1970 in Townsend, Massachusetts. Townsend is a historic New England town of 9,000, an hour northwest of Boston, just south of the New Hampshire border. From the start, the guy had a very troubling upbringing. He was emotionally, sexually, and physically abused by people who were supposed to be protecting him. His father and his stepfather abused him, and ultimately, as
0: a teenager, he was abused at the hands of a psychologist. Um, I'm sorry. I mean, obviously, you were telling us a story about a crime that this guy is going to commit, but that is just horrible. There is a special place in hell for healthcare workers that abuse children. Mm-hmm. Oh, for sure. Yeah, it's and
1: it's just horrendous. So, according to reports, his home was littered with discarded items, old cars, and just general junk. Teachers described him as a loner and not particularly friendly. His peers at school noted that he was creepy and weird and that he didn't seem to care much about his physical appearance or hygiene. In his teens, he was arrested multiple times for burglary, which added to his already bad reputation. He had a strange habit of breaking into people's homes and moving things around. It's super creepy. He would just do that to mess with people.
0: Yeah. And talk about something that you couldn't do now that you could do in the 80s. I mean, everybody would have like you on film. Yes.
1: Yeah. True. True. So it's in this state of mind and with this background that we find Daniel LaPlante, alone, abused, already a petty criminal at 16 years old, and about to commit two almost unspeakable crimes. So up over to the town of Pepperell, Massachusetts, only about nine miles east of Daniel's hometown of Townsend. It's here that we find the Bowen family living at 93 Lawrence Street. Pepperell is a quiet, small town of 11,000 near the New Hampshire border. This town dates back to the Revolutionary War, and the Bowen family is living in a two-story split-level home. Now, we've talked about this style of home before, but as a quick refresher, in a split-level, you typically walk in on a foyer level, and from there, you'll find a half-set of stairs going up to the living and kitchen space, and a half-set of stairs going down to the bedroom area of the home. Their home, in particular, is a three-bedroom, two-bathroom colonial-style home built in 1975 and is about 2,200 square feet so a pretty typical 1970s family home. Sadly, the family had endured the loss of the matriarch of the family to cancer, and obviously they're all struggling, and it leaves Frank alone to raise his two daughters. Being a now-single father, Frank is forced to work more often, leaving the girls home alone. I want to quickly note that I found conflicting reports as to one of the daughter's names and ages. In some reports, one of the sisters is listed as as the younger sister of the two, Jessica, age nine. And in other reports, she's listed as the older sister by the name of Karen. So that's just one example of how the story's kind
0: of grown legs and just yeah, big. I mean, we well, said it sort of became like this urban legend. It but did. That's drastically different. So mm-hmm. I'm sort of assuming that if there are that many conflicting reports, the sister is not really the subject of our story here,
1: right? Well, on this on this first part, it, okay. she kind of is. Okay. Yeah, okay. yeah. But and I only went with sources that I could I could really verify that they seem like legit legit sources, and they had sightings that seem legit. So I think, like I said, I think this is a, a pretty good representation of what happened. So what we do know for sure is that one of the daughters is Tina, and she is 15 years old, and she is the one who becomes the focus of the first of the two torturous crimes committed by Daniel Laplant. Now, LaPlante reportedly knew Tina from school and became infatuated with her. And there, again, there were some conflicting reports that I saw. Um, Melanie, will you tell us about the one that we just talked about?
2: Yeah, it's, it's kind of hard, as you mentioned, to, to understand exactly what happened. But I did see some reports, but it might have all been just... Traced back to the same report that he basically got our phone number, started talking, or basically kind of described himself as a good-looking athlete from an, a nearby school and convinced her to go on a quote-unquote date with him but when she uh, opened the door he looked and was obviously very different and um, that apparently she was nice and went out with him but for like an hour and then obviously didn't see him again can't necessarily confirm that but that is one thing I did read about right. them yeah and regardless cat, cat fishing. The, yeah. Yeah, the
1: first catfishing um, regardless it kind of adds to the creep factor of this whole story but
0: Yeah, I mean, he was obviously infatuated with this girl. Yes,
1: yes, absolutely. So in late 1986, Daniel gained access to the Bowen residence and began a weeks-long menacing exploit. Frank didn't think much of his girls' claims that things in the home seemed awry. They were adjusting to a new normal without their mom in the house, and for all Frank knew, the girls were either forgetful or playing jokes on each other. He actually at one point ordered the girls to undergo counseling, thinking the odd behavior was due to the girls struggling with grief from their mother's death. But for weeks, the girls complained of odd behavior. The channel on the TV would be changed after they left the room. Items in the home were misplaced. Milk was poured into glasses and left in random places around the home. All in all, none of these things were very harmful in any way, but the fact that they were happening was all kind of creepy. And I kind of don't blame Frank for thinking the girls were pulling his leg or playing
0: jokes on him because that's just weird. Like, why, why would this be happening? I mean, I'm with you. This sort of sounds like my house all the time, though. I mean, we've talked about, we live with teenagers. Do you know the number of misplaced glasses of drink that I find places? I mean, it's somewhat typical, you know, just not paying attention kid behavior. Right. But I'm surprised your first thought wasn't that it was a ghost, (laughs) (laughs) Anna.
1: I didn't go, again, there's always people in the house and the kids are doing, I don't know what, and yeah, I didn't think
2: ghost. Yeah, you're right. I... uh, Did you see there were some articles that were saying that at one point in time that the girls were playing with a Ouija board?
1: I saw that on a few. Yeah. That to me sounds urban, like an urban legend.
2: It it, it definitely sounded urban legend, but... I also know of your extreme yeah. fear of Ouija boards. <laughs> and so um, the idea that they were saying that um, somebody was knocking on the wall mm-hmm. as, as they were playing with the Ouija board. I'm like, oh, I could just see Ellen go, nope, nope, <laughs> I, I am out, out I'm of out. here right away. <laughs> Um, So I totally agree with all that.
1: But in this case, unfortunately, Frank was very wrong about it being a prank. And on December 8th, 1986, the family returned home from an outing to discover that someone had used one of their toilets.
0: Okay. That's just gross. That's really gross. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So after the search of the home, Frank found Daniel LaPlante hiding in a bedroom wardrobe. LaPlante was decked out in face paint, wearing what he described as a Native American style jacket, ninja mask, and wielding a hatchet. LaPlante jumped out of the wardrobe and forced the family into the bedroom using the hatchet. Just kind of ushered them in. Thankfully, Tina was able to climb out of a window
0: and run to a neighbor's home for help. I'm sorry, not to totally derail your story, but can I just point out that this is the second hatchet-wielding story we have covered where one of the victims also escapes out the window to call for help at a neighbor's house? Yeah, you're right. I mean,
2: What's who would have thought that would be so popular? <laughs> I mean, well, we've also talked about the prevalence of hatchets. And we had talked about in some of the older cases, okay, well, we could you know, mm-hmm. for firewood. This is like 1980 something. Yeah. Yes, the other yeah. one was in the seven or 50s, but in California, in Los Angeles. Okay. There's just a lot of, ha- oh, well, remember we were talking about um, one axe murder um, in, in the Midwest, but like that was also in like the 19th century. But yeah, I just, how often are people wielding hatchets?
0: Well, I thought Frank Lloyd Wright was also a hatchet, wasn't he? Okay, maybe, oh, there's, yeah, maybe, there's maybe there's more. <laughs> <laughs> all right. We should start hashtag hatchet okay, in
1: our social I'll do media. Okay. I'm going to do that. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, you're right. You're, you're absolutely I forgot about the Frank Lloyd Wright story in this sense. However, unlike the story of Frank Lloyd Wright, where they found the perpetrator almost immediately when the police arrived at 93 Lawrence Street, they found no sign of Daniel and left. Despite the all clear from police, the family stayed at a hotel for the next few days. Um, yeah, I think yeah. it would take me a long time totally. to comfortable for comfortable sure. in my own home again. Yeah. <laughs> Fast forward a few days to December 10th when Frank returns home to gather a few things. And from outside of the home, he sees the figure of a man in the window. Of course, he quickly called for police and he, along with Officer Stephen Besenson, entered the home to search it. On a wall to the right of them as they walked into the home, they see a knife sticking out of the wall holding up a photograph of the family. Written on the picture were the words, I'm still here, come find me. On another wall, there was another picture with the words, I'm going to kill all of you written on it.
0: Okay. This guy really enjoyed like the Listen. response yes. he was getting from what he was doing. Yes. That, I mean, that's terrifying, but you can tell by what he did that he got a
2: kick out of it. Okay. Right. This is true horror.
0: Yeah. I think that's a, a trait of a
1: serial killer too. Like I was reading, what's that? Oh, Ramirez, what, Night Stalker in Los Angeles. He did similar things. He would break into people's houses and just do weird stuff. And then leave, like not, not no. even like yeah. not even
2: like where he was doing a crime to the person, but just or, to the house. Right
1: before he began his journey as a serial killer, he was breaking into homes and just doing weird stuff and then leaving. Yeah, like the like gateway. Yeah, yeah, maybe.
2: Yeah,
0: yeah. Oh. it's really weird. It's like killing animals or something. Right. Yeah. Well, well, interesting. Okay.
2: I, I read one really dumb article about this story where they linked the fact that he lived on Elm Street. (laughs) I I kid you not. (laughs) Oh, yeah. To like the nightmare on Elm Street.
0: Yeah. So everybody that lives on Elm Street. So like, you know, one eighth (laughs) of the U.S. population. It's like Main Street. Right. Yeah. (laughs) So... That's terrifying
1: that he saw that from the street. So the police waste no time in searching for this guy. Two other officers were called to the scene and they, along with Officer Besenson, were able to ascertain that the suspect was hiding behind a wall in the bathroom.
0: Wait, wait, wait. How did they figure that out? Like
1: They found food wrappers and other things. Like, I think they found a blanket, just like weird things in the walls. Oh. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, so listen to this quote from Officer Besenson recalling the day. I pulled my pistol and said, I got the son of a bitch right here. I told him, let me see your hands or I will splatter your brains
0: all over that wall. Doesn't that sound like, like I would think a Boston or Massachusetts. Totally. Conference. I have only watched Rizzoli and Isles like seven <laughs> times all the way through. And that is absolutely. Oh, good. Then you can do it in the accent. Go. No. Okay. No. <laughs> I do love Angie Harmon though. Uh, yeah. So creepy. Uh, yeah. Really creepy. And I mean... You would just put yourself in the detective's place for a minute. You go in looking for somebody. How many times are you looking behind the walls? Right. Yes. I mean, that is, yes. it's just so abnormal. I was also thinking about each of our homes. And I think
1: of any of us, Melanie would have someone living in the walls because we've both recently had our walls open for remodels and stuff. So I love that you gave
0: this some thought.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> whose house am I never going back
2: to? Well, it, I mean, what's weird to me is this was a relatively new house. It was only ten or so years old, and so I mean, I guess I can see in an old house. Like, I've known somebody in my neighborhood who was like looking at their house one day, and they're like, "What is that window on the side?" And then they realized that there was a boarded up uh, tiny little room, and so like, I could see that in an old house. But in a house that they might have been one of the very first people to live into, like where's this crawl where's this extra space that they're living in yeah I mean you you definitely live
0: in the oldest house among us and I could see you having just like a hidden passageway mm-hmm.
2: yeah you know or I something mean, like I wish that. I mean it- like there, I did you know one time uh, you know realize that like my bedroom closet and when i say closet i mean like a tiny little door that you can put a few shirts in um and it when i knock on the do- on the wall of it it's hollow because uh my other son's closet it kind of backs up to each other and so i i did see in another neighbor's house what they ended up doing was they actually tore down um the the wall in between the two closets and made one mm-hmm. like large kind of long closet uh, that's the only like Thing that I I could notice. Well, I'm just saying
1: your house is over 100 years old. Maybe you should go around like pulling all the sconces in your home just to make sure like nothing
2: opens, mm-hmm. like no I, secret I, passageways. Yeah, yeah. I think uh, mostly I would just find um, a lot of cracks in the wall, <laughs> a um, bit of and dust. I, and, oh yeah, a lot of dust.
1: So, not surprisingly, Laplante was arrested after this and placed in a juvenile facility. Upon further investigation into his crime, they discovered he was living in the walls of the house and had peepholes in the walls of the house where he could spy on Tina. Additionally, he was living in the crawl space of the house, no bigger than six inches, bounded by a concrete foundation and inner wall.
0: Heather, are you claustrophobic? You know, I am a little bit claustrophobic, um, but I can't imagine this. Like, I don't like a crowded elevator, right? Mm-hmm. I can't imagine a six inch crawl space. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's really small. I don't know how, I mean, if you, if you think about this, I want everybody to picture this. 6 inches between the floor and your ground he would have to be laying flat mm-hmm. with like either his back or his chest on the ground and the other on the floor of the mm-hmm. house there's no room to move there yeah yeah it gives me the heebies thinking about it well and mel you had some crawl space issues, mm-hmm. right? Like-
2: yeah, yeah. If you remember in one of the earliest episodes, I talked about how when we had to get um, new duct duck work for our air conditioning downstairs replaced, because the ductwork work was in the crawl space below our house, um, they had to go under it. But because over time, over the years, I mean, I think ours originally was probably 18, 24 inches, but in Texas, you know, our wonderful soil. Um, and, you know, as rain would come and as the heat, it would expand. And so it got to be about six inches. And so I'm highly claustrophobic. And so I couldn't even watch when they would do it. They had to go crawl underneath the house with like hand shovels in order to shovel all the dirt out to make it a large enough that somebody could then put in um, new duck work. I mean, and I would hear the guy underneath our house because um, his phones would ring. And, and then I would here I'm having a whole conversation underneath my feet while I'm like sitting on the couch. So I can completely kind of understand this. But I also i am like, I want to figure out how could he have the peepholes. I, I did find a schematic and I can't um, say the legitimacy of it um, that shows where at one point in time, he was holed up in this little triangle spot um, in the house. But obviously, he was able to get into the house enough that he was moving things around and going to the bathroom. Mm -hmm. Well,
0: and okay, so from a logistic standpoint, he would almost have to go into the crawl space and be under the house and then come up through the walls because you can't go behind a wall without cutting into it where somebody's going to see.
2: Yeah, and that's how I'm sort Mm -hmm. of picturing Mm -hmm. it.
0: Yeah, for sure. Okay.
1: Yeah, and I think that drawing online, I think that's legit because I think the police officer drew that. So I think that's a legit one and... Heather, we we can
0: post it. Yeah, we'll post it online
1: for sure. So Daniel's arrested and he's released on bail from the juvenile center by October of 1987, less than one year after the crime. Reportedly, his mom remortgaged her home to pay his $10,000 bail. But not two months later, as he was awaiting trial, he committed an even more sinister crime. Once back on the streets, Daniel was up to his old ways, burglarizing homes and being a general neighborhood nuisance. On December 1st, 1987, Daniel LaPlante broke into the home of the Gustafson family, a half mile from his home in Townsend. It's a two-story, Cape Cod-style home that sits on a dead-end road. He is armed with a 22 caliber firearm he had stolen from another residence the month prior. Upon entering the home, he encountered 33-year-old Priscilla, a nursery school teacher who was pregnant with her third child. Also in the home at the time was Priscilla's five-year-old son, William. LaPlante led Priscilla and William to her bedroom where he tied her up to the bed and locked William in the closet. He then raped Priscilla and shot her twice in the head with a stolen gun. After murdering Priscilla, he led William to an upstairs bathroom where he drowned him. As he was leaving the home, Abigail Gustafson, Priscilla's seven-year-old daughter, returned home from school. According to court records, Abigail suffered blunt force head trauma and was drowned in a downstairs bathroom.
0: Okay, well that is tragic and so sad, but I'm also sort of shocked by how quickly he mm-hmm. escalated from you know these devious pranks to a serious crime. I mean right. that was
2: very dramatic
0: in very short amount of time. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, seemingly so. Yeah, yeah absolutely.
2: Um, mm-hmm. I mean, we remember we're talking about a 16 year old. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I have a 15 year old and as well as the uh, 13 year olds, and I mean th- to think that they would could do that, uh, it boggles my mind. Mm-hmm. I'm
0: also very upset that he like, had problems after his mom mortgaged the house to get him out on bail. Mm-hmm. I feel bad for mom. I mean, I feel bad for mom in a thousand ways, but... I mean,
1: I don't know. I feel bad for mom too, but he, his childhood was messed up, it sounds like. Yeah, yeah. And I don't know. I don't want to, I don't know. That's that's a tough one. So, the Gustafson patriarch, Andrew Gustafson, had been work at the time these atrocities were committed. When he got home from work, he found Priscilla's bloodied body in the bedroom and immediately called 911. Andrew was quoted as saying, I was too afraid to go look for my children because I was afraid I would find them dead. It was so shocking and unbelievable. I screamed, I wailed. That quote is just heart-wrenching. I, know. I, I can't even imagine. Almost like orchard up reading it. Yeah. yeah that's yeah. a tough. That's tough. When officers arrived, it was them who found the bodies of the children. It is believed by officers who arrived at the scene that Abigail fought for her life and that. That is how she suffered that blunt force trauma. LaPlante was quickly identified as suspect number one when gloves and a shirt found in a wooded area behind the Gustafson home were found. Using the scent of the shirt, dogs were able to lead investigators to the LaPlante residence. LaPlante was brought in for questioning but was released when they lacked the evidence needed to arrest him. But LaPlante had no intention to wait for them to gather the evidence and went on the run. He fled back to Pepperall and to the home of Lynn McGovern, She lived in a wooded area that they suspected Daniel to be hiding. Lynn flagged down an officer who was in the area looking for Daniel and asked if he would accompany her into her home. She reported that when she pulled into her home garage, she immediately pulled out, feeling uneasy. The officer walked her into the home and immediately heard a loud noise come from upstairs. He drew his sidearm and began to make his way upstairs. Daniel, hearing the officer approaching and seeing his partner in the police cruiser outside, jumped out from the second story window and into the woods. Later, he returned to the street that Lynn McGovern lived on and found Pam Michaela, who he forced into her car. Pam, though, jumped out of the vehicle.
0: Oh, wow. That is so smart of her. Now, I remember hearing, and y'all may have the actual stats on this or or no more, but that your chances of survival when you go somewhere with an abductor drop Mm -hmm. dramatically and that you should do anything you can do to get out of the vehicle or just not be taken. So good for her for thinking fast and jumping out and also good for Lynn for listening to her instincts when she Mm -hmm. pulled in and felt like something was wrong. Yeah,
1: definitely gut feelings to go with. Absolutely. Yeah. So Daniel LaPlante was finally caught hiding in a dumpster and placed under arrest 48 hours after the manhunt began. He was eventually sentenced to three life sentences for the murders of the Gustafson family. He pled guilty to all three murders and was required to undergo psychiatric evaluation. He was eventually sentenced to three life sentences for the murders of the Gustafson family after he was required to undergo psychiatric evaluation. He was found to be mentally fit enough to go through trial and was tried as an adult. It is also reported that he came across as very unlikable during the trial. He is said to have smirked the whole time and showed absolutely no remorse. Today, he is 53 years old and still in prison. He has shown little remorse for his actions. Oh my gosh.
0: Yeah. I mean, I'm glad he's still in prison. I I also think there's a special place in hell for somebody that kills pregnant women and children. Oh my gosh,
1: yes. I I can't imagine. No. Okay, so let's talk about what happened to the Gustafson home at 3 Sanders Road in Townsend, Massachusetts. Since Andrew Gustafson left the home sometime after the murders, the home has changed hands four times. The four bedroom, two bathroom... 1778 square foot home sits on approximately nine acres and last sold for $450,000 in 2022.
0: As uh, for the, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm sorry, I just jumped in on you, but nine acres. Mm-hmm. I mean, the home is probably set back. I'm just thinking about for him to intrude on that home. Mm-hmm. It's not like he just picked one of the houses on a street. He had to really. Right. Yeah. And it's all, apparently, he was really familiar with the wooded area that all the houses sat on. It was very close to his own home. so Oh, that makes sense because yeah. he said like that wooded area where Lynn was, they thought that's where he was hiding. Right. So, he, okay, got yeah. it. That, so that makes more sense. Yeah. He was probably
1: like walking through the woods right. to these houses. Right. Okay. Right. So as for the Bowen residence, it was last sold in 2016 for $275,000, but maybe worth twice that today. Frank Bowen now appears to live in Alaska with his daughter, Tina, is in his early 50s and has not publicly commented on the case. There isn't a lot of information about either of these homes online, whereas in some homes that we've covered, the community kind of embraces what happened in the home, like what we saw in the Velisca murder house, or completely, or it was completely demoed or changed like in the Manson family or the John Bonet home. This just seems to have been a blip in the history of the home and a blip in the history of this portion of Massachusetts.
2: Okay. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I can see that. Yeah. You know, um, compared to other cases that we've done, this one, there was a lot less Um, about the house out there. Mm -hmm. And I thought that was just kind of interesting. You know, uh, there's a lot of weird websites about that track different where crimes are But I think maybe there's just a lot out there about kind of what happened, but not necessarily about the situation, maybe because it wasn't in an urban area. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, I'm not sure. It it was surprising to me how difficult it was to to research um, some of it. Yeah. Well, and, and it happened in multiple homes too, mm-hmm. right?
0: Um, you know, but I didn't realize this until recently. There's actually a name for people that live in other people's homes. It's called frogging. And have you guys been watching like all the new frogging shows that are That's out there right weird. now? weird. There's a bunch of shows about it? Yeah. Oh my gosh. Okay. So frogging is with a PH, not an FR. <laughs> of course. Um. Of course. And yeah, it's, So I listened to this great podcast that if you're not listening to, you should be listening to called A Date with Dateline, where they break down the Dateline episodes because I'm that much of a nerd. I like to watch the Dateline episode and then get commentary Mm. on the Dateline episode. But Dateline was on vacation over the summer, so they were covering a couple of different shows and they covered um, a couple of frogging shows that I think were on Lifetime and I just saw them pop up on Hulu. And so, if you are listening to this, it is probably still on Hulu. Go check out some of the frogging episodes. Um, is that different than squatting? Well, it is because squatting is typically in a vacant house. Mm, but frogging gotcha. is in a house where people are still living. Gotcha. Okay.
2: Yeah. I'm, like, I, I feel, I, I don't know what the story is, but isn't there one where somebody was living in the attic? Like, ah. I, I don't remember what the mm. horror story is, but yeah, I've definitely heard of someone like living in the attic at the same time. I don't know. I haven't heard that one. Now I'm going to go research it. Stay tuned for a future episode. Mm. Yeah. Well,
0: I loved this episode. Yeah. I mean, it was very different mm-hmm. and interesting and sort of mind blowing. And I still want to go to Boston. So thank okay, you good, for that.
1: Good, good. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was fun to tell. It was uh, tragic and horrific,
0: but... Um, It's interesting. Yeah. And I just, I just keep thinking, like, do you think you would know if somebody was living in your house? I mean, you guys have heard my dog bark from time to time. You would absolutely know if there was somebody else here. I don't think so. I don't think so.
2: You don't think you would know? I don't think I would know. Where would this person be living in your house that you would not know? Well, in the wall. Are we talking about the walls? Yeah, in the walls. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, yes, I think so. Not just because of my crazy big dog, um, but also because everything creaks in
0: my Mm. house. Yeah. (laughs) The insulation in 1920 something was not that great. So you hear everything. Uh, I also had another question that popped to mind, but I didn't want to interrupt you when you were like in the flow of your story. So they found out that he was living there because he'd used the bathroom. Mm -hmm. So when you're showing houses and your clients need to use the bathroom, what is your rule of thumb? Um, I don't know if I have a rule of thumb. Okay. Yeah. So my rule of thumb is if the water is on. Oh. And they have not specifically put a note asking you not to use the restroom, then Mm -hmm. it is fair game. Yeah. Well, I would agree with that. But I was talking to somebody else recently and they're like, no, your client just have to stop at like a 7-Eleven or something. And I was like, have you ever had a client with a toddler? I mean, you're showing nine houses in a row. Or off in the country somewhere. Yeah. I'm like. I feel like, so I was really grossed out by this guy using their bathroom, but I'm curious and I'm curious what our listeners think. Like if your house was for sale, would you expect people mm. to use your bathroom? That's a good question. I see. Melanie, you have this look on your face. Like I never dawned on me that somebody might use my bathroom and I'm horrified. Is
2: that what you're thinking? I mean, on one hand, I think that, but on the other hand, I think well, if I was looking at a lot of houses, I'd need right, to use a restroom. Yeah. So well, that's the thing. Yeah. I'm pretty laissez-faire. I, I think that I would be fine. Um, and I'm mm-hmm. thinking that if I had, you know, um, if my house was on the market, it would be clean enough that I would not be, you know, too, too embarrassed about someone going into the bathroom. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. Let's hope. Let's hope. <laughs> For sure. Yes. Definitely clean your bathrooms if you're putting your house on the market. So we're going to talk about listed living Oh it. yeah. We haven't done that. Yeah. Um, so I guess, well, let's start with the one with Tina. Okay. Bowen. Right. The Bowen house. Because yes, a crime occurred there, but a murder didn't occur there. Right. So I'm all in on that one. hmm I would live there. I would list it. I would also list the nine acres. Mm-hmm. The Um, Um, But I, I don't think I'd live there. Yeah. I think
1: the same. I would definitely list both. I don't think I would live in the Gustafson house. I would live in the Bowen house. And Gustafson, yes, because the horrific murder happened there,
2: but also the woods are really creepy to me. (laughs) So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. The first one, I would only live in it if there had been some serious remodeling and blockages and clear uh, walls. Uh, yeah, uh, of, uh, <laughs> acrylic walls. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> there would have to be some changes to whatever floor plan that allowed them in. Um, but then the second one, I don't think I could live there because of um, children, hmm, children's okay. deaths. I think okay. that I am highly sensitive to children's deaths.
0: Yeah, I think that. I think that makes sense. All right. Well, I hope that if y'all enjoyed this podcast, I mean, we always love it when you subscribe and leave a review, but better than that, like tell a friend, we would love for you to tell a friend about this great new podcast you're listening to and share it with them and uh, come back and listen next week. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Hey
1: y'all. Thanks for listening and being a part of our Kramer State family.
0: If you're curious about today's featured Crime Estate, you can find additional photos and details from today's episode online at CrimeEstate.com. or on Facebook and Instagram by following at Crime Estate Podcast. Have a Crime Estate we should cover? Let us know. Shoot us an email at
1: CrimeEstatePodcast at gmail.com. Until next week.